Welcome to Cancer Conference Update ASCO Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Keith Flaherty to talk about the rapidly expanding menu of systemic therapy clinical options emerging in melanoma, beginning with TKIs targeting mutations. This year's ASCO was exciting in the melanoma community. We saw some expansion in terms of the number of agents that target BRAF or MEK, which is immediately downstream of BRAF in the same pathway, the so-called MAP kinase pathway. So we now, if you were to add them up, would say we've got two BRAF inhibitors that seem to be performing very similarly, the approved drug, Vemurafenib, but at this year's ASCO, Dubrafenib, which is another so-called selective BRAF inhibitor. And then again, BRAF primarily activates MEK, M-E-K, which is a kinase that's immediately downstream of it. And for the first time, a MEK inhibitor by itself in patients with metastatic melanoma harboring a BRAF mutation has shown clear efficacy as well. So now, again, sort of three agents that sort of corroborate the idea that targeting this pathway is an important concept in terms of improving outcomes for patients in the metastatic setting. And then the last element, I would say, in terms of new frontiers in that patient subpopulation is the combination of one of those BRAF inhibitors with the MEK inhibitor. So a two-drug approach in the same pathway, which is an early study, phase one slash two, but nonetheless, the results there are certainly exciting. So just to get a little bit more specific in terms of what was updated, there was some information presented on vemurafenib from the BRIM3 study and other things presented on vemurafenib. Anything that came out of that that was noteworthy from your point of view? Well, you know, as listeners may remember, this was an agent that had transited through phase two and phase three development very, very quickly. And the phase three trial, in fact, was halted after a median follow-up time of three months amongst the approximately 680 patients who were randomized between vemurafenib and dacarbazine. So already after just median follow-up of three months, the overall survival was sufficiently different, uh, clinically significant and statistically significant, that the Data Safety Monitoring Committee recommended halting that study. That result was presented at ASCO last year, and this year's update with the vemurafenib phase three was sort of the longer-term follow-up, probably most importantly of the vemurafenib arm, if you look at the two arms, the patients who had been assigned to carbazine were permitted to cross over to vemurafenib. So obviously you would expect that to improve their outcomes. But obviously we've been interested in looking at longer-term follow-up of BRAF-treated cohorts to have a sense about longevity of benefit. You know, are there a meaningful subpopulation of patients who can go beyond a year, let's say a year and a half, or even further in terms of maintaining response? And, and that, I would say, was the heartening update from the phase three data is if you look at the experimental arm, it looks like longer term follow-up is showing that you don't lose all of the effect of a BRAF inhibitor just in a matter of months. What about this phenomena of increased skin reaction, more drug reaction of emurafenib after IPI? Do you think that's for real? I think it probably is real. And the reason being that IPI is a monoclonal antibody with a long half-life. So it does linger around, you know, for a good while after a fourth induction dose is given. That's one issue. The other is that with immunotherapies, we've learned, well, if you look at their anti-tumor effect, that the anti-tumor effect is typically maintained for quite a long time after you stop therapy, right? So there's something about pushing the immune system with an agent like that that seems to have a very long-lasting effect, in fact, years-long, for patients who've maintained long-lasting responses you know, without continued treatment with that agent. You have to figure then, from a toxicity perspective, the propensity for autoimmune toxicity, which is what ipilimumab will cause, that is probably set in place 
during induction therapy or soon thereafter, and then likely remains in place thereafter for some time. So you have to figure that if the BRAF inhibitor in some way can whip that up, of course it causes rash in its own right, you have to figure that maybe there's a lingering effect, biologic effect of the ipilimumab, and now the BRAF inhibitor will take advantage of that. You know, we wouldn't worry, obviously, about the other sequence in that regard. BRAF inhibitors, you know, when you stop them, it takes about a week, maximum two weeks, for the last bits of that drug to be cleared out of one system, and we don't think there'd be that kind of lingering issue if you were to treat with a BRAF inhibitor and then later ipilimumab. So you mentioned the new data on the second BRAF inhibitor. I guess it's pretty encouraging. It's going from a number to a name to yeah, Brafinib. Exactly. And there was the BREAK3 study reported, as well as BREAK-MB, looking specifically at brain mets. What was seen there with this agent? Yeah, well, let's start with the phase three trial. I would say now through phase two and phase three development, Dabrafenib looks to be pound for pound an agent with very similar efficacy compared to Vemurafenib if you were to compare across trials. That's measured by response rate, progression-free survival, as the metrics we've got so far with Dabrafenib. Dabrafenib is a younger drug, and the phase three trial is relatively immature to even give us a sense of its overall survival impact. Notably, that trial was relatively small, three-to-one randomization in favor of Dabrafenib, and with the follow-up time being as short as it's been so far, there's really no estimate yet on the overall survival element. But we would say those upfront metrics of anti-tumor effect response and PFS really do give us a sense that this agent plays very, very similarly. I guess the old eyeball test on the waterfall plot, I remember seeing some of the early ones on Vemurafenib, and this Dabrafenib one looks incredibly similar shape-wise. I absolutely agree. Small percentage of patients with primary refractory disease, let's say 10% or fewer, 90% with some degree of regression, and then you know going all the way down to a subset of patients, less than 10%, of course, who have complete responses. So it profile does look very similar. The toxicities look a little different. I think that's something to keep an eye on as this agent moves forward. If it were to gain FDA approval and join Vemurafenib, it's probably a toxicity profile difference between those agents that might allow doctors and patients to sort out some sort of preference there. But just going to your point about the other abstract, which I think is really exciting, is this brain metastasis-focused phase two trial with dabrafenib. A group of patients who had low-volume asymptomatic brain metastases and then a group that had higher burden of disease that in fact was symptomatic and even steroid requiring in some cases to manage those symptoms. So two cohorts of patients enrolled and the activity in the brain particularly if you focus on that group with sort of low-volume asymptomatic lesions, it looks identical to the anti-tumor activity outside the brain. And these patients, essentially all of them, have metastases elsewhere to make that comparison. So you'd say then, okay, well, if this drug has equal efficacy in the brain as elsewhere, that's therefore a pretty attractive agent for patients who have brain involvement, which is a significant percentage of our patients you know, at the time of initial diagnosis. And I think probably the biggest practice-changing paradigm of this data would be the idea that if you have a patient with multifocal brain metastases, you could conceive of the idea of giving them systemic therapy. You know, in this case, the dabrafenib data is what's really front and center amongst the BRAF inhibitors instead of whole brain radiation, figuring that, you know, look, we've always known that whole brain radiation doesn't have a great impact in this disease with visible metastases in place. So you got to figure then that systemic therapy might actually be the better upfront approach for the management of multifocal brain disease. And I would separate out solitary lesions, which one might still consider for surgery or stereotactic radiation. You know, it kind of reminds me of what I see happening with EGFR mutations in non-small cell. Right. 
you know, holding off on radiation therapy and going with an EGFR TKI. Is that what you're doing right now in your own practice? Precisely. Just as you say, that's the one precedent we can point to of so-called oncogene-targeted therapy. And of course, it's an older precedent with EGFR inhibitors in lung cancer to say that looks like a reasonable approach. Again, it's not like we're withholding highly effective treatment in the setting with whole brain radiation for multifocal disease. We know it has pretty modest impact. You mentioned the differential side effects. One of the things they talked about was pyrexia. Mm -hmm. To what extent does that occur? How much of a clinical problem is it? And what was seen in terms of second squamous cancers? Yeah. So again, toxicity profile is unique when you compare vemurafenib to dibrafenib. And pyrexia is the one that shines out as being a dibrafenib-associated toxicity. We really don't see with any real frequency with vemurafenib. I should just mention parenthetically that photosensitivity is a toxicity we see with vemurafenib that we don't see with dibrafenib. So it cuts both ways. It's not that much of a clinical problem. It's about 10% of patients have sufficient degree of pyrexia that you have to think about adding on agents, you know, acetaminophen or others to try to just ameliorate that effect or where you might even make a dose interruption or a dose adjustment of the dibrafenib. Pretty infrequently does it impact on how you administer the agent. It, in fact, comes back up again when we'll talk in a moment about the BRAF-MEC combination. There, you actually see a good bit more pyrexia. In fact, if anything, if there's any toxicity that's sort of problematic with that combination in terms of administering to patients, it's the pyrexia. And how is it managed? So you can gain immediate control if you do interrupt dosing. You know, the pyrexia will break relatively quickly. But many patients have sort of low-grade fever associated with the drug, and acetaminophen alone is plenty to manage that. If it really persists or is recurrent over the course of a several-day period of time, we find that if you interrupt the dosing for just a couple of days, that'll break that cycle, and you can typically reinstitute therapy even at the previous dose and not run into much of a problem. So that really kind of leads us into the other MEK inhibitor that you just published in the New England Journal, and also there was some data presented at ASCO, the metric phase three study. And again, it's got a name, trametinib. Right. Yeah, just adding to the list. Again, I referred to that before as the third agent that you'd have to say now is a validated drug in the MAP kinase pathway for patients with a BRAF mutation. So it's a different point of intervention, again, just downstream of BRAF itself. But it seems to be borrowing from a similar biology. But it is a different agent. And so the toxicity profile, for example, is different. But again, it's an orally available drug given daily. And as chronic therapy to these patients, you'll see an initial anti-tumor response that's not quite as profound as the BRAF inhibitor associated data with vemurafenib and dibrafenib, but it's close. Progression-free survival impact that in the phase three trial was clearly better than chemotherapy, and that was the primary endpoint of the study, in fact. But if you, again, were to compare over to BRAF inhibitor therapy, it looks comparable, maybe a little bit less durable effect. And then very interestingly, even though it was a secondary endpoint, the MEK inhibitor improved overall survival compared to chemotherapy in that phase three trial also. And the importance there is, okay, now we know that agent can improve outcome all the way to overall survival included, and that effect is roughly comparable to a BRAF inhibitor, but we have a BRAF inhibitor in clinical practice. So then the question is, how does a MEK inhibitor fit in? Because this data was generated in patients who were BRAF mutant, but BRAF inhibitor naive. Could I just clarify, I assume that both this agent, trametinib, as well as the BRAF inhibitors have been studied in BRAF negative disease and don't work? They work less well. So actually, I wouldn't say they don't work. So the evidence we've got so far with this agent, trametinib, and now MEK162, and I would add to that a MEK inhibitor from Merck Serono amongst the large group of them that are in clinical trials. These are the three that have been evaluated in melanoma to the extent that you can say, no, there's clearly some real objective responses and 
relatively intriguing looking anti-tumor activity measured by the waterfall plot, let's say, in NRAS mutant, as well as some who are BRAF and NRAS wild type. So that remaining 30% of our patient population who don't have one of those mutations, you still see some activity in that group. But the issue is, is it enough to really think about developing these agents by themselves, single agent, or does it have to be some kind of combination strategy to take advantage of what effect they are able to mediate? So what's the difference between these MEK inhibitors, for example, MEK162 and trametinib? Are they all just sort of dirty TKIs that hit the you know, different kinases slightly differently? Yeah, you know, they're a remarkably homogeneous set. But they're a, not dirty. No, in a very good way. They're very clean. So they're so-called allosteric inhibitors of MEK, which is to say that unlike other kinase inhibitors the medical oncology has grown accustomed to, they're not ATP-competitive targeted agents. And so they're actually able to engage MEK in a very selective way on a domain that other kinases don't have. And so, in fact, you see them being very selective for MEK itself with really almost no evidence of cross-reactivity against other kinases. But that statement holds really for this whole large class of MEK inhibitors for which we're seeing data emerge. So then the big differences actually are in pharmacokinetics. So just going back to first principles, some of these agents have very short half-life, and even when you dose them a couple times a day, you're unable to achieve a reasonable concentration over time. The successful ones, and here I mean trametinib and MEK162, where we've seen this data at ASCO, those are drugs with relatively long half-lives. And so when you give them once or twice a day, depending on the agent, you'll see, in fact, that patients achieve a nice steady-state concentration. And that's what seems to correlate with the efficacy we're seeing. So I guess that leads into one of my favorite presentations in the entire ASCO meeting that you were the second author on, Jeff Weber presented, looking at the combination of BRAF inhibition, again, dibrafenib, along with the oral MEK inhibitor, trametinib. Well, let me start with the easy part, which is that we are extremely excited about that combination. And the simple point is that the efficacy so far looks to be promising. So the idea here really was that if you added the MEK inhibitor, could you make BRAF inhibitor-associated responses more durable, right? So could you improve response duration or prolong progression-free survival? That's what the evidence, the BRAF inhibitor resistance mechanisms and the laboratory evidence would support, that concept. And that's the emerging evidence we've got, is that if you give the BRAF inhibitor and the MEK inhibitor together at their individual full doses, you see progression-free survival and duration of response that appear to be months longer than what we've seen reproducibly with the BRAF inhibitors by themselves. Now, we're going to need more evidence on this because what I'm quoting and presented at ASCO was the expansion cohort, the sort of phase two cohort from a large study, but nonetheless, you still need more numbers of patients in there. And in fact, that same study was a phase one slash two and included a randomized phase two portion, which is going to be reported this fall. It wasn't ready yet for ASCO, in which 50 patients will receive the BRAF inhibitor and the MEK inhibitor at their full doses in combination, and 50 patients were randomized to receive the BRAF inhibitor by itself. So it's not a huge study, but it'll give you some cleaner sense of the real potential difference here in terms of efficacy. And I want to deviate a little bit to a really fascinating point about this combination, which is going to be a little hard to wrap your mind around, but follow me here. The two drugs together, when given at their full doses, actually produce less toxicity than either drug alone. And here's how it works, we think. And there's lots of evidence, laboratory evidence, and even some human biology that supports this. The BRAF inhibitor 
will only block the pathway, the MAP kinase pathway, in tumor cells with a BRAF mutation. That's been shown over and over again. It won't block the pathway in normal tissues, and in fact, it can stimulate the pathway in normal tissues. We think that's why these patients form squamous cell carcinomas. In fact, we published a paper on this topic related to vemurafen of associated squamous cell carcinoma linking this activation phenomenon to the appearance of those lesions. And it may well be, in fact, that other toxicities are caused by activation of the MAP kinase pathway. But you look over to the MEK inhibitor, and that will block the MAP kinase pathway in the tumor cell, yes, but it also blocks the pathway in other tissues. So if you figure that the BRAF inhibitor, if anything, promotes signaling in the pathway in normal tissue, and the MEK inhibitor blocks that activity, you could argue that they sort of cancel each other out biochemically in normal tissue, whereas in the tumor tissue, they're effectively helping each other out. And we think that's why the side effects are less, because the clean examples of that are that the squamous cell carcinomas are nearly completely suppressed by adding the MEK inhibitor to the BRAF inhibitor, right? That's a BRAF inhibitor-associated toxicity. And then flip that around, MEK inhibitors cause an acneiform follicular rash and diarrhea very commonly. But when you look at the two drugs together, you don't see either. You don't see follicular rash. You see a BRAF inhibitor-associated rash in some folks, but no follicular rash, and never do we see diarrhea as a significant toxicity. So actually, I meant to ask you before, in terms of dibrafenib, what is the incidence of skin cancers, for uh, example, compared to vemurafenib? Because I thought it was less. No, you're right. Actually, you asked it, and I forgot to answer it. That's right. The number now through phase two and phase three testing is running lower. And you'd say it's in the range of maybe 8 to 10% based on phase two and phase three data in aggregate with that agent. And that does look a bit distinct from vemurafenib, which is running in excess of 20% in both phase two and phase three populations if you were to put them together now. And so those numbers do look distinct. And it's an interesting issue because I quoted this phenomenon of MAP kinase pathway activation. Well, it actually looks pretty clear in the laboratory that not all BRAF inhibitors are created equal in terms of how much of an effect they have along those lines. So then when you swing over to the patients and ask, well, why would it be that one of these agents might cause more of these squamous cell carcinomas than another, it may relate to some of this fundamental biochemistry and just differences between the compounds in terms of what they're able to do in that regard. I should mention a couple points about it because, of course, anybody in the community who might participate now in the phase three trials that are being launched is going to need to get familiar with this pretty quickly. The idea here is that we'd like to try to hold off on steroids or prednisone, but they can work, 10 milligrams of prednisone a day. But these things can pop up really anywhere along the course of therapy. They're not a first month kind of phenomenon. In fact, we have patients who've been cruising along five, six months on combination therapy and then pop up for the first time with fevers, and they can be persistent even when they show up that late in the course of treatment. So you have to be mindful of it and importantly educate patients about it because they need to call in and really, you know, sort of get on board with a algorithm for managing them in the outpatient setting. Let's talk a little bit about immunotherapy. And in a minute, I'll ask you, there were some IPI papers presented, including one at the oral but, of course, the big news was anti-PD-1, not just in melanoma, but also renal cell and non-small cell. But Steve Hody had a presentation, and I love these simultaneous publication things that New England Journal in particular is doing. Right. So what about anti-PD-1? Yeah, well, uh, just briefly, as you say, there was not a lot of new information, I think, this year's ASCO about ipilimumab. We essentially know what we're going to know, I think, for the time being on that agent. So now the real surprise player emerging is PD-1 and then also PD-L1, 
targeted antibodies. So the most mature of this class of therapies is the PD-1 targeted antibody, MDX-1106, which was the one presented and published simultaneously. That's been now through the most patients, so 296 patients, in fact, in the phase one clinical trial. And then the other approach targeting PD-L1, which is the ligand that interacts with PD-1, so different cells sort of interacting at that level. An antibody targeting either of those clearly has anti-tumor activity, but based on current evidence, the front runner, again, is this PD-1-targeted drug. Let me just mention the biology behind this because it's fascinating, and it points to how it is we might be able to tailor this therapy in years to come. So immune cells normally express PD-L1 and then that latches on to PD-1, which is on T cells, the effector cells that could recognize and kill tumors. And that's a silencing mechanism when PD-L1 reaches across and ligates PD-1. But the nasty little trick is that tumors have figured out how to express PD-L1 in some cases. And when they express it, that silences those T cells that otherwise might be capable of recognizing and destroying them. And so it's a tumor cell mechanism of cloaking themselves and repelling the immune system. So the idea is that you know blocking it maybe gives you a more specific immune effect against the tumor with less effect on the normal tissues, for example, in comparison to ipilimumab. So before you get off that, I'm always looking for simplified graphics that'll help <laughs> me understand this stuff. Yeah. And Dr. Rivas in his discussion had a really cool graphic that kind of showed where the CTLA-4 agents work and where anti-PD-1 works. It kind of looked like it was at least visually to look at it, that the anti-PD-1 was sort of acting in closer to the T-cell, or was that just the way Well, it I actually, we think closer to the tumor almost. So if you were to add up all of the understanding we've got about these mechanisms, which of course have a lot to do with just immunology and not just tumors, by all accounts, CTLA-4, the target of ipilimumab, is quite important in so-called central programming of the immune system. And thereby, when you block it and activate T-cells, maybe it's not so surprising that we see anti-tumor effects, yes, but we also see T-cells going after some normal tissues fairly commonly. Whereas PD-1, PD-L1 in normal immunology is more of a peripheral mechanism of sort of refining immune responses. And again, tumors have co-opted this to some degree and express PD-L1 in some instances. So you'd have to say then that there's different elements of how CTLA-4 and PD-1 play in regulating the immune system. And that's probably why the autoimmune toxicities of PD-1 and PD-L1 antibodies appear to be pretty clearly less. I wouldn't say non-existent, but less than ipilimumab. Anything else you want to say about the clinical data that was presented at ASCO and anti-PD-L1? Well, yeah, let me put it this way. The data that we've got right now with MDX-1106 is that it runs a response rate, mind you, in a phase one clinical trial of just under 30% objective responses by resist criteria. That number should register because we're looking at a response rate of just about 10% with ipilimumab and a little lower than that in terms of durable responses with IL-2. So to see an immunotherapy being given as a single agent, outpatient treatment, registering an objective response rate of just about 30%, that really is a pretty striking observation. Furthermore, and this needs a lot of additional work to nail this down, if you just look at patients whose tumors express PDL1, the ligand, what you'll find is that's where the responses are. If they don't have PDL1 on their surface, it would appear based on the early data you don't see responses. This was part of the paper that was published simultaneously in the New England Journal. It's a pretty striking association there, and it would give you the notion that if not immediately, 
then eventually in the lifespan of these agents, you could think about the idea of this companion diagnostic of testing for PDL1 expression and targeting PDL1, PD1 antibodies to those patients. What is the fraction of patients who are PD1 positive? In melanoma, it's most. So it's about two thirds of it appear based on the available evidence. And in other cancers, it spreads all over the place in terms of the percentage. But you alluded to the fact that there have been responses observed in kidney cancer and non small cell lung cancer, and those are known to express PDL1 fairly commonly as well. Not all cancers do. So again, this may be a more tailored immunotherapy approach based on that expression. Although if I stop and say to myself, what does non-small cell, renal cell, and melanoma have in common? I'm not sure what the answer is. (laughs) Well, this is the great point, right? BRAF mutations, for example, they're most common in melanoma, but they happen fairly commonly in papillary thyroid cancer. You pick up a decent little subset of colon cancer and a smattering of other tumor types. And I think we're learning over and over again that there is cross-cutting biology that different subpopulations of different tumor types take advantage of as they become cancers. And so when we think about developing these therapies, you know, of course, hormone therapy is going to always have its domain in prostate cancer and breast cancer, but you've got to keep an eye towards the idea that we're going to keep uncovering new mechanisms that do cut across cancers, at least to some degree. So the holy sledge grail, I guess you could call it, (laughs) but how is the PD-1 assay done? Is it IHC? Yeah, exactly. It's IHC. And I alluded to the idea that more work's going to be needed here, and that is the case. The assay, even though it's immunohistochemistry, actually needs a good bit more work. It's not clear which antibody amongst the many that are out there for use in this purpose for the diagnostic piece are really going to operate sufficiently well to actually have them give reproducible effects. But look, if you just stare at that data that's in the New England Journal paper, even if that's a suboptimal antibody in an assay, it actually still produces a very striking association. So in terms of toxicity with these two agents and others like it, what I've sort of heard is kind of like hippie, but a lot less and a lot more difficult. So, right, so a lot less difficult, I'd say, in aggregate, because we still see skin toxicity is the most common, but that's not been a major issue even with IPI in terms of really interrupting therapy or, or having to intervene with corticosteroids. What we've seen a lot less of is colitis and diarrhea associated with that, and that's a major ipilimumab phenomenon. In terms of some of the other internal effects that can occur, hepatitis, for example, it still shows up with the PD-1s, but not as frequently as with ipilimumab. And then the other category that we're keeping an eye on with these agents that we don't see much with IPI is pneumonitis. And as was reported at ASCO in this very large phase one trial with MDX1106, there were two cases of what appeared to be fatal pneumonitis occurring. And that's out of 296 patients, but you still got to say, okay, well, maybe that's a unique type of autoimmune phenomenon with this class of therapies that we have to keep an eye on for. We talked earlier about BRAF inhibitors and brain mets, and what do we know about the immune therapies? There was a poster at ASCO on ipilimumab. What do we know about that and brain mets, and for that matter, anti-PD-1 and PDL one Yeah, well, it's easy for PD-1 and PDL one we just don't know yet, because patients with active brain metastases have been excluded from the trials so far. But with IPI, we learned at ASCO two years ago that there are responses in the brain that appear to be just as likely as elsewhere. And that's in patients with relatively low burden, asymptomatic brain metastases. Patients with symptomatic brain metastases on corticosteroids in that phase two trial of ipilimumab in brain met patients didn't look as promising. But in the lower disease burden patients, it did appear to have activity. So again, we don't yet know with PD-1. The issue though, just revisiting a comment I made a while ago, 
is that IPI has a response rate, but it's a good bit lower than, let's say, BRAF-targeted therapy. So if you were to start thinking about the idea of, well, hey, let's maybe use ipilimumab in place of radiation treatment for these patients, I'd say, well, but with its 10% response rate, you know, that's not necessarily vying for a change in practice standard just yet. So in our practice, and I think most, we look at that data and we say, well, okay, we're probably going to still have to tend to these brain metastases with some temporizing measure in terms of radiation in conjunction with IPI as a systemic therapy. Might be interesting to see the PD-1 positive patients, how they do with brain mets. Exactly. And you figure, look, if the response rate overall is higher, even in unselected patients, and if you could even enrich that further, you could absolutely change the paradigm here in terms of postponing or dismissing radiation from the algorithm for those folks potentially as well. There goes the blood-brain barrier, huh? Exactly. The immune system can get in there. Of course, we know that. If it cleans up meningitis successfully, then it must penetrate. So the immune therapies, we think by all accounts, the drugs don't need to get in as long as the immune cells can get in. The interesting and maybe surprising piece was the BRAF anti-tumor activity in the brain because we didn't think those agents really were going to be able to get into the brain reasonably well. Just got to ask you about one paper about basal cell. I'm always fascinated by the Vismodegib, the hedgehog inhibitor. Yep. There was one poster at ASCO on the Irrevance study. What did that look at, and where are we with this agent and this tumor? Right. So that's longer-term follow-up of data that was, well, first published in the New England Journal, but presented at ASCO in previous forms. Basically, what we've known with that agent, Vismodegib, which is a hedgehog inhibitor, in a tumor type, basal cell carcinoma, that almost always has a mutation in hedgehog itself or hedgehog's partner smoothened. But basically, mutations in one or the other are essentially always found. And so it's almost think of CML, you know, with a BCR able being sort of pathognomonic of that disease. It's a similar story here. And so the anti-tumor activity is as robust as any targeted therapy we've seen so far in terms of initial anti-tumor effect. It's not 100% reliable, but it certainly comes close. And the follow-up data that was presented here at ASCO helps to address the issue of how long-lasting can those responses be. You know, disappointingly, there are some tumors that will work their way around relatively quickly, but others actually clearly can maintain long-lasting responses beyond a year, year and a half or so. And in the medical oncology community, of course, everyone's aware that metastatic basal cell carcinoma or even very locally advanced basal cell carcinoma, it's just not a very common problem because it's so generally manageable at the time of initial recognition and surgical excision. But there are patients who, unfortunately, you know, can have disease that either isn't tended to or they don't bring it to attention and it can become advanced and, let's say, in a very cosmetically sensitive area. You can imagine that, in fact, some version of neoadjuvant therapy with this type of approach where you shrink the tumor initially with a hedgehog inhibitor and then render the patient amenable to a less invasive surgery. That could be a real game changer for patients with locally advanced disease. Of course, for metastatic patients, this represents now a treatment standard. And notably, I'm sorry I skipped over this, it was FDA approved just a few months back now. So it is FDA approved for locally advanced or metastatic basal cell carcinoma, and no molecular testing is needed because, as I said, these hedgehog and smoothened mutations essentially always exist in these tumors. So it's just in the clinical entity.